to The People's Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast. If you are tuning in for the first time, then welcome to the People Scientist Army, where every week I arm you with the latest scientific evidence to help you lead the healthy life you want to live. In today's episode, we are talking all about alcohol. We will discuss the effects of alcohol on our brain in the short term and long term. Are there any health benefits to drinking alcohol in small amounts? And who is at risk for alcohol use disorder and what treatment options exist? This is one of the topics that I'm currently specializing in and studying in my fellowship. So I hope to be a great source of information for you on this topic. I also hope the information I share with all of you will help open up our mind to a better understanding of alcohol and the effects on our brain. So to start off, here are a few core takeaways from today's episode. Using epidemiological data, one drink per day appears to have health benefit, but anything above this is associated with negative health effects. Now, alcohol acts on our brain by being a depressant, or in other words, quieting down our brain activity. As a result, many people turn to alcohol for self-medication of anxiety, which in truth, though, can turn into a vicious circle because the next day after drinking, our brain can go into hyper-excitability mode, which can perpetuate anxiety. When someone escalates from recreational drinking to alcohol dependence, then to alcohol addiction, this becomes a disease of the brain. And it is so important for people to understand this. With long-term intake of high amounts of alcohol, the brain literally changes to alter one's memory, decision-making, risk-taking, and their requirement for alcohol to live and carry out daily activities. Now, releasing the stigma of alcohol use disorder or alcohol addiction and talking about it more openly will hopefully lead to better understanding and helping those who need it. Now, with those core takeaways, let's jump into the details. According to the 2015 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 86.4% of people aged 18 or older reported that they drink alcohol at some point in their lifetime. As a result, alcohol is the most consumed drug in the world. But what are the health effects of drinking alcohol? So let's start off with what alcohol does to our brain in the short term and long term. Now, drugs are often categorized into two categories. They are either one, a stimulant, or two, a depressant. Now, alcohol is considered to be in the depressant category. But some may say, hey, Stephanie, when I drink alcohol, I feel like it is stimulating. You know, I talk more, I have more energy, etc. It doesn't seem to be a depressant in me. But the reason we categorize it as a depressant is because alcohol reduces the activity of many receptors in our brain. Alcohol causes what we call disinhibition. So it impacts the normal inhibitory actions of our brain. For example, alcohol acts as a positive allosteric modulator on the GABA-A receptor and therefore increases inhibitory signaling in the brain. But ethanol can also inhibit the inhibitors, which in essence can cause activation and increased activity in some brain regions. Now think of it this way, you can speed up a car one of two ways. 
You can either put your foot on the gas or you can take your foot off the brake to speed up the car. Alcohol in smaller amounts is like taking your foot off the brake of your brain. It loosens our inhibition, so to speak. Alcohol in low amounts is known to activate the brain reward center. Now, alcohol, like other drugs, can hijack this brain reward circuit. Now, I talked about our brain reward center in the very first episode on this podcast where we talked about sugar addiction. Our brain reward center includes brain regions such as the nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmentum. This brain reward circuit has one purpose, and that is to keep us alive. So whatever our brain thinks we need to stay alive, for example, food, our brain makes it very pleasurable to us in order to reinforce our motivation to obtain it. But the thing about drugs is that they hijack the brain reward circuit and tricks our brain into thinking that this is pleasurable and we need this to survive. That is what alcohol does to our brain if we consume it for a long period of time. Binging on alcohol changes our reward circuits and they start to become desensitized and we can develop tolerance. So then we'll need to drink more alcohol to achieve the same pleasurable response. The thing with long-term alcohol abuse is that the same brain regions that used to be quieted down or inhibited while drinking now have a compensatory upregulation and become more activated. This includes the stress response systems. And George Koob is a really big proponent of this research in that long-term alcohol abuse causes more stress signaling in the brain. So with alcohol abuse, the stress brain regions in our brain that are normally suppressed with alcohol become hyperactive. Long-term alcohol intake is also known to impair the frontal cortex of the brain and our ability to make decisions and to take risks. In animal models, it is well established that long-term alcohol drinking impairs thinking, memory, and significantly enhances risk-taking and anxiety. Higher intakes of alcohol are also known to impact the cerebellum, which regulates our motor control, so our movement and our walking. That is why high intakes of alcohol can cause people to stumble and impair their walking ability. So in brief summary of the effects of alcohol on our brain, alcohol is a depressant on our brain, but it can also be rewarding in low to moderate doses. In long-term intakes of high amounts of alcohol, alcohol can change our brain to make us dependent on alcohol, can increase our stress signaling, impair our decision-making, our ability for memory, and also impairs and increases our risk-taking behavior. But besides the detrimental effects of alcohol on the brain, some people are thought to think that alcohol can also have health benefit. For example, the Mediterranean diet, which is rich in unsaturated fats and red wine, has been associated with health benefits. So what does the research say on that? Well, Mostovsky in 2016 conducted a prospective study where they looked at correlations between alcohol consumption and health. They concluded that moderate intake, which was defined as up to one drink a day, was associated with a lower risk of high blood pressure, heart attack, stroke, sudden cardiac death, gallstones, cognitive decline, and a lower risk from death from all causes. However, even moderate intake could place women at a higher risk for breast cancer and bone fractures, and higher intakes of alcohol increased the risk for colon polyps and colon cancer. Similarly, Zhang in 2014 concluded that low alcohol intake was associated with a reduced risk for stroke morbidity and mortality, whereas heavy alcohol intake was associated with an increased risk of total stroke. But outside of just correlation studies, how about we look at some controlled intervention studies? 
Gepner in 2015 followed a cohort of 224 patients living with diabetes that did not drink any alcohol previously. They were asked to add either 150 milliliters, which is five ounces, of either mineral water, white wine, or red wine to their daily routine and followed them for two years. The scientists noted that red wine significantly increased the good HDL cholesterol, it increased apolipoprotein A levels, and decreased the total cholesterol to HDL ratio. So these are all beneficial effects on heart health. Across the three groups, though, there were no differences for red wine, white wine, or mineral water for blood pressure, fat mass, liver function, drug therapy, symptoms, or quality of life. But they did note that sleep quality improved in both the white wine and red wine group compared to the mineral water group. So in the study, the health benefits seemed to be specific for the most part to red wine, which perhaps could be due to the antioxidant polyphenols that are present in red wine that are speculated to be of benefit. Similarly, Imhoff in 2009 reported that low intakes of red wine improved adiponectin levels in women and ethanol and beer improved adiponectin levels in men. Now, adiponectin is a hormone derived from our fat tissue that has many benefits, such as helping us maintain a healthy weight, healthy blood glucose levels, and reducing inflammation. So the fact that small amounts of red wine, ethanol, or beer increased adiponectin here was seen as a beneficial effect. Now, all of these studies look at low levels of alcohol intake, such as five ounces a day, and do appear to have some health benefits. But we know that the risk of health issues increases if we consume more than that on a regular basis. So now let's talk about more alcohol consumption and what alcohol does to our brain. In 2015, 26.9% of people aged 18 or older reported that they engaged in binge drinking in the past month. Now, binge drinking is defined by the NIAAA as drinking that brings your blood alcohol level to 0.08, which equates to about five drinks in men and four drinks for women within a two-hour window. Now, you are considered to have heavy alcohol use if you have done this five times in the last month. Now, with drugs including alcohol, there are categorizations for diagnosis. For example, the first stage is considered experimentation, where someone may try alcohol for the first time or they drink it very rarely, like they drink alcohol maybe once a month. The next stage is recreational, where someone exhibits no signs of dependence but drinks socially and occasionally, for example. Then dependence is the next stage, where someone feels like they need alcohol to relax, to de-stress, or to fall asleep, or in order to have a good time, and they do this often. Alcohol in this scenario may be used as a coping mechanism. This stage of alcohol dependence, in my opinion, is the most important to target in our population, as I feel a lot of people fall into this category and are completely unaware. At this stage, we can help people to find better coping mechanisms besides alcohol, and we are early enough in their exposure to prevent any long-term brain damage. So if you feel you may fall into this category, your awareness of your dependence is the first and most important step that you can make today. Because if alcohol dependence is not recognized and stopped, then the next category unfortunately is addiction, where alcohol has been consumed chronically for a long period of time, which has led to the brain to literally change and adapt so that now the person's behavior is different. The brain circuits that control their decision-making and stress and risk-taking are different and their brain thinks it is now necessary to consume alcohol 
Otherwise, they will go through withdrawal symptoms. Now, let's make one thing, one thing clear here. This stage of alcohol addiction is categorized as a brain disease. And I think it's really important for people to understand that. Some people may be wondering, well, how do I know if I or someone I love has alcohol addiction or alcohol use disorder? So here are some criteria to help you understand that. Someone may be living with alcohol abuse if they have exhibited one or more of the following occurring within the last year. Number one, if they had recurrent drinking resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations such as work, school, or at home. Number two, if they have recurrent drinking in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Number three, if they have recurrent alcohol-related legal problems. Or number four, continued alcohol use despite having social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of alcohol. So if someone has one of these four characterizations, they may be suffering from alcohol abuse. Now, there are other criteria based on the DSM criteria that include signs of alcohol dependence as well, which is the stage before alcohol addiction. So if someone exhibits three or more of the following symptoms during a 12-month period, they may have alcohol dependence or alcohol use disorder. So here are the following questions to help diagnose that. Have you had times when you ended up drinking more or longer than you intended? Have you more than once wanted to cut down or stop drinking or try to but couldn't? Have you spent a lot of time drinking or being sick or getting over the after effects? Have you experienced craving or strong need or urge to drink? Have you found that drinking or being sick from drinking often interfered with taking care of your home or your family or caused job or school problems? Did you continue to drink even though it was causing trouble with your family or friends? Have you given up or cut back on activities that were important or interesting you, interesting to you in order to drink? Have you more than once gotten into situations while or after drinking that increased your chances of getting hurt? Have you continued to drink even though it was making you feel depressed or anxious or adding to another health problem? Have you had to drink much more than you once did to get the effect you want? Or in other words, have you developed tolerance over time? Have you found that when the effects of alcohol were wearing off that you had withdrawal symptoms such as trouble sleeping, shakiness, irritability, anxiety, depression, restlessness, nausea, or sweating? If you have felt three or more of these symptoms in the last year, you may have alcohol dependence. But please don't worry, living with alcohol dependence is not something to be feared because it is something that can be overcome. And I will give you information on that throughout this episode. But if you want more information on the diagnosis of alcohol use disorder, alcohol dependence, or more resources, the NIAAA has many excellent resources online for people in need. In my opinion, alcohol use disorder or the final stage alcohol addiction, I feel is very misunderstood. It is a serious brain disorder that people need help in order to overcome. But stigmatizing people that live with alcoholism will not help them. Excessive drinking changes the brain and makes it difficult and in some scenarios impossible to stop drinking. Otherwise, people may go into life-threatening withdrawal symptoms. I think it is so important for people to realize that alcoholism is a brain disease. When you think, why don't you just stop drinking? For some, their brain has changed so much that their brain thinks that they literally need alcohol to survive. I think that drinking for stress and anxiety, particularly in women, is largely underreported and needs to be brought to light. 
when I was conducting clinical trials and running nutrition education clinics, I found that men had no issue being upfront about their drinking habits. They would offer the information to me without even me asking about it. But women were the opposite. They would seldom offer information to me about their drinking behavior. It was something I had to ask about in different ways in order for them to open up about their drinking behavior. And I think it is so important for us to recognize that alcohol use disorder also exists for women. If we talk about these issues out loud and have conversations about it, then I hope we can help some people out there that have alcohol dependence. Just like we have had a spectacular movement to be more open about mental health in our society, I think we need to start extending that to include alcohol use disorder as well. In women, alcohol use disorder is incredibly stigmatized because if they mention this to their doctor, for example, in a request for help, there's a fear that there will be repercussions, particularly if they are a mother and have children, because then these women may fear that their children will be taken away from them if they're diagnosed with alcoholism. So women tend to keep quiet, but we need to have safeguards in place for people to discuss their addictions in a safe manner. I think women in particular are very vulnerable to look to alcohol as a coping mechanism for the stress that goes on in their life. For example, I'm conducting research right now on female-specific alcohol dependence and how our menstrual cycle and feelings of anxiety and stress in our life can potentially increase alcohol dependence. See, it is very common for us to self-medicate ourselves with alcohol because anxiety is hallmarked by having a lot of glutamate in particular brain regions, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. Glutamate is the excitatory neurotransmitter that activates our brain regions. Now, Gerard Sanacora and others are big proponents that to treat depression and anxiety, we need to focus upon glutamate. Liz Moore in 2018 illustrated that mood disorders such as anxiety and depression are characterized by having reduced inhibition or GABA in the cortex. Now, here's the thing. Alcohol acts on GABA receptors in the brain. GABA is the opposite to glutamate, and that GABA quiets down the brain. And as a result, alcohol is what we call an anxiolytic. It reduces anxiety. So it makes sense that people are trying to reduce their symptoms of anxiety and stress through alcohol. But some people will say that the next day after drinking, they feel even more anxious. You want to know why? It's because your brain is rebounding from the alcohol, quieting it down. This is called rebound hyperexcitability. The alcohol was telling your brain to quiet down and stop making glutamate. Then when the alcohol cleared from your body, your brain goes, glutamate, time to wake up. Kathleen Brady in 1993 very nicely reviewed the connection between different anxiety disorders and their increased risk for alcoholism and how this may be a vicious cycle as withdrawal from alcohol can induce symptoms of anxiety as well. So we need to look for other coping mechanisms besides alcohol to deal with our anxiety. And I will jump into that right away. But besides the brain, we know that alcohol has a negative impact on the rest of our body as well. Particularly, we know the liver is very much impacted with long-term high alcohol intake. Alcohol increases inflammation in the body. That is because when alcohol is metabolized primarily by the liver, it creates the compound acetaldehyde, which is a toxic, short-lived byproduct which contributes to the inflammation in the liver, pancreas, brain, our gastrointestinal tract, and our other organs. But now that we're talking about alcohol metabolism, I want to bring up briefly the different metabolism between men and women. You might have wondered why women are told to limit their alcohol to less than men. 
The reason being women tend to metabolize alcohol less efficiently than men. We tend to have less gastric ADH, which is stomach alcohol dehydrogenase, which turns alcohol into acetaldehyde. So our first pass metabolism of alcohol is less than men. We also tend to have less total body water than men. So the alcohol is more concentrated in our body and therefore we are more likely to feel the effects versus men. Of course, this is not always the case as everybody's body is different. For example, some people born of Asian ethnicity have aldehyde dehydrogenase deficiency and are unable to metabolize the products of alcohol efficiently. So after even just a few sips of an alcoholic beverage, some of these people with this deficiency can feel very intoxicated. Their faces commonly become very red and flushed. And so our genetics can also determine how quickly we metabolize alcohol. Now that we have talked about the effects of alcohol on our brain and body, let's talk briefly about alcohol use disorder and potential treatments. So who is at risk for alcohol use disorder or alcohol addiction? Well, there are thought to be both social and genetic factors that can increase the risk of alcohol addiction. For example, Trudeline in 2006 showed a very strong association for the gene CRHR1 that encodes for the corticotropin-releasing hormone receptor 1. Now, this receptor is important in many physiological processes, including our response to stress via the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal pathway. The scientists reported that within a sample of adult alcohol-dependent patients, there was an association of this gene and with higher amounts of alcohol drinking. There's also a relationship between genetic differences for the gene CHRNA5 and alcohol dependence. Now, this gene encodes for a specific type of nicotinic receptor. And about 30% of Europeans have the genetic allele in this gene, or slight differences that encode for this receptor. And genetic-wide association studies have shown that there is a strong correlation between people with this genetic allele and their risk for alcohol dependence. So our genes may play a role in our risk for alcohol addiction, it's true. There's also a social aspect to increasing the risk of alcohol dependence. For example, if your family members drink, if your friends drink, if your coworkers drink, or if you've had a traumatic past, live with an anxiety disorder, or have a stressful career, all of these social factors can also increase the risk for social dependence because we may turn to alcohol as a coping mechanism. So what are the treatments for people living with alcohol use disorder? Well, there are a few medications that have been shown to be effective. Varenicline, or some may know it as Chantix, is actually a smoking cessation aid to help people stop smoking, but it also appears to help reduce alcohol intake. So this may be a viable option for people who both smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol, which often is a very common combination. A compressate is another medication that can help with the irritability and cravings during alcohol withdrawal. The one issue is that people have to take a campersate three times a day, so there might be some issues with compliance, but it can help with alcohol withdrawal symptoms. There's another medication that if you drink alcohol while taking this medication, it will make you violently ill and it will induce nausea and vomiting. Now, this medication is disulfiropam or antabuse. But the issue is, again, if people want to drink, they may just stop taking this medication. But this medication, if taken, is very effective because it blocks acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, which then means that the acetaldehyde builds up in the body, which is toxic. And as I mentioned, about 40% of those living with Asian ethnicity have an allele which inhibits or reduces this enzyme. And that's the reason why they turn red and flushed and may feel sick from drinking alcohol. 
Naltrexone is another medication thought to help with alcohol addiction as it blocks the pleasurable effects of alcohol, so people don't want to drink anymore when they take this medication. Now, if there are issues with compliance or people taking this medication on a daily basis, there are long-lasting injections that may be another option for people with alcohol addiction. Now, some people have wondered if psychedelic drugs could help with drug addiction or alcohol addiction, but Here's the issue with psychedelics. In some people, psychedelic drugs can induce lasting psychosis that lasts after the high. Now, psychosis is a severe mental disorder in which thought and emotions are so impaired that their contact is completely lost with reality. And we don't know yet who is vulnerable to the lasting effects of psychosis from psychedelics. So the question is, are you willing to take that chance? And how do you know if you're one of those vulnerable individuals that can have that lasting psychotic effect from the psychedelics. Gabapentin is another medication that has been around for a long time and very recently has been explored for its ability to help with alcohol withdrawal. Now, gabapentin is an interesting drug as it increases the GABA in the brain. Remember I mentioned it that GABA is the neurotransmitter that quiets down the brain and alcohol acts on this receptor. So in the past, this drug has typically been used to treat epilepsy and nerve pain. But recently, it has been explored to treat anxiety as well as alcohol withdrawal, which are characterized by too much glutamate, the activating neurotransmitter, in the brain and not enough GABA. So, so far, gabapentin, which increases the GABA, appears to work in some people and reduce withdrawal symptoms of alcohol. I'm also intrigued by the idea of the ketogenic diet for alcohol withdrawal. Now, I know sometimes it can sound like people say the ketogenic diet can cure everything, and trust me, it cannot. But I came up with this interesting hypothesis and I would like to study it soon. I bring up the ketogenic diet for the same reason that the drug I mentioned, gabapentin, is working in some for alcohol addiction. And that is the ketogenic diet and gabapentin may have similar effects on the brain because they can increase GABA and reduce glutamate in the brain. Sussman in 2014 and Olivieri in 2008 both have shown this. When the ketogenic diet was first established for patients that are living with epilepsy. Well, gabapentin is also a medication to help patients living with epilepsy. So they both work by a similar mechanism to increase GABA in the brain. And we need more GABA if we want to overcome alcohol withdrawal. So it's not a far off hypothesis to think that perhaps a ketogenic diet can help with alcohol withdrawal symptoms. But this is just a hypothesis that I've come up with. This has never been studied, not even in animals. So do take this hypothesis of mine with a grain of salt. But I did do a podcast episode on the ketogenic diet several weeks back, so if you are curious, just go back and give that a listen. In regard to other suggestions to help overcome alcohol dependence, some of the suggestions I made back in episode one to help fight sugar addiction may also help many people turn to more healthful coping mechanisms instead of turning to alcohol. For example, I talk about social interaction, exercising, caffeine, searching for novelty in our life, getting a massage, heat therapy, and many other coping mechanisms. However, again, I need to make a clear distinction. Someone that has alcohol dependence and looks to a couple glasses of wine or beer to reduce stress and anxiety may benefit from some of these suggestions that I made. But people with alcohol dependence are different from someone who has alcohol use disorder or alcohol addiction. Alcohol use disorder or alcohol addiction is where someone's exposure to alcohol has been so long-term and in such high amounts that their brain has changed. In this situation, medical interventions and medications that I listed above are required 
along with a team of physicians and an addiction psychiatrist to really help someone with severe alcohol addiction to overcome their alcohol use disorder. But for those that are in the early stages of alcohol dependence, I have one last suggestion, and that is another resource to help us find better coping mechanisms instead of turning to alcohol. I would like to suggest another podcast called Cut the Crap Podcast by none other than my big brother, Ryan Caligiuri. In his weekly podcast episodes and YouTube vlogs, he discusses helpful coping mechanisms and ways to achieve mental resilience. I think we need a lot more of this positive information out there in the world. My big brother and I are trying to work together to get a little bit of information out there to all of you every week so you can live the healthy life that you want to live. So give his podcast or YouTube vlog a listen, and I hope it will give you some beneficial insight to some helpful coping mechanisms as well. So that is a wrap for today's episode on the People Scientist podcast. I have armed you with some scientific evidence of how alcohol acts on our brain and to find what alcohol dependence and alcohol use disorders are. I hope I have opened the conversation and destigmatized the reality of alcohol dependence in our society, particularly the hidden dependence that women bear. I hope I have given some helpful information to everyone in regard to identifying alcohol dependence and looking for helpful coping mechanisms for our stress and anxiety. If you have any questions or want to reach out to further this conversation, feel free to message me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. So next week, it is Memorial Day long weekend here in the United States, so I will be taking next weekend off from the podcast, but you can expect to get another episode from me in two weeks' time on June 2nd. So until then, I hope you all have a super healthy week. If you are living in Canada, I hope you have a wonderful long weekend this weekend. And if you are in the U.S., I hope you have a fantastic and healthy long weekend next weekend. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.